0: They're in business together Danny Bush knows The Carlisle Group Since years before Been raking in billions And itching for more It's It's blood blood for oil We know there's a link
1: That was Code Pink by Emma's Revolution. I'm Leonardo Flores of Code Pink. Welcome to our Code Pink radio show presented by WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston, and many other community radio stations like Western Mass Community Broadcasting, WMCB-LP 107.9 FM. We are also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Check out our web... Site at www.codepink.org/radio, where you will find all of our episodes from episode one to this latest one. We've got a great program for you today. In the first segment, Terry Matson of Code Pink interviews independent journalist Alina Duarte about the recent referendum in Mexico. The second half is an extract from our online "No to NATO, Stop the War in U- 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 Ukraine" rally held earlier this month. But first, some news. Chilean-American journalist Gonzalo Lida, who resides in Ukraine and has been covering the conflict there, has been missing since April 15. A strong critic of Ukrainian President Zelensky and of the neo-Nazi elements in the country, there is a fear that he has been arrested or worse. On his Twitter channel, at Lida, a pinned tweet lists several assassinated or de- detained Ukrainians and asks followers to Google them to learn the truth about Zelensky before Writing, if you haven't heard from me in 12 hours or more, put my name on this list. Right-wing and neoliberal media have accused him of being a shill for Putin or even a spy, leading to fears for his safety. There is no evidence for these accusations. Lida's reporting challenged the official narrative and that made him a threat. Chile's foreign minister has contacted the Ukrainian government about the status of Lida. The State Department, though, hasn't said a word, despite the fact that he is a US citizen. A reminder that May 3rd is World Press Freedom Day, here's to hoping that Lida and every other disappeared journalist in the world is found safe. In Colombia, yet another signer of the peace accords has been murdered, as were with another three social leaders earlier this week. That makes 57 social leaders murdered so far this year alone right in the middle of the campaigns for president. Yolima Perez, just 34 years old, was a former guerrilla who signed the 2016 peace agreements. Part of her reintegration into society had her work as a monitor for the implementation of the accords. The leader of comunes, the political party she belonged to, denounced that with her death, there are now 11 women signers of the peace accords that have been assassinated with impunity under the unmoved watch of the Duque government. Another party spokesperson said, The life of women ex guerrillas is in constant danger in the midst of the colonial capitalist patriarchy in Colombia and the lack of guarantees for comprehensive reintegration. In Mexico, the legislature voted against President Andrés Manuel López Obrador's energy reform that would have overhauled the industry via constitutional reform. The president denounced that powerful interests had purchased legislators whom he accused of treason. Although this reform failed, a different law was approved nationalizing Mexico's lithium to ensure that its extraction benefits the nation and not corporations. That segues nicely into our first interview, where my friend and Code Pink colleague, Terry Matson will interview Mexican independent journalist Alina Duarte. Take it away, Terry.
2: Today's episode is titled Challenging the U.S. Narrative Against Mexico. On Sunday, April ten. Mexicans went to the polls to determine whether sitting President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador should or should not remain in office to finish the remaining three years of his six-year term. Of the approximately 16 million citizens that participated, over 90% voted yes. Yes, AMLO should continue his presidency. Several of the energy reforms envisioned for his remaining three years are not supported by Washington as suggested in a series of anti-energy reform articles published by Bloomberg beginning last year. The most recent article titled Mexican Opposition Party to Vote Against AMLO's Power Bill was published April 4, just six days prior to the April 10 referendum. And then on April 22nd, published in the Washington Post an opinion piece titled, AMLO has already lost half of the people who brought him to power. It is clear what Washington wants, but what do the Mexican people want? To give us some context as to the April 10 vote and the ramifications of the results is journalist Alina Duarte joining us live from Mexico City. Alina reports for scene censura has a Sunday 1 p.m. Eastern program live on Scene Censura. She's also a journalist with Canal 14 here in Mexico City. Welcome, Melina. So happy to have you back on our program.
0: Thanks for inviting me once again, Terry. It's my pleasure.
2: So why don't we start with uh, you giving us some background as to what led up to uh, the April 10 referendum, where all that started, and why it was so important that it was actually carried out?
0: Okay, well, there's a lot going on now in Mexico. Definitely, there is, I think, the most important part of this administration. Uh, The last three years, we've seen a lot of, like, um, improving the the social programs about these, this campaign of the media, the corporate media against our administrations, but now we are like seeing, uh, we are seeing now the the fight, the struggle. It's more visible than ever. So uh, what we saw last Sunday, we had a recall referendum, and it's uh, it's it's amazing because if we if we go back to the history in Latin America, we remember the referendum against Chavez in two thousand fifteen. If I don't know, it's two thousand five, two thousand. Yeah, after the coup in 2000. Uh, too. Um, and we remember that was the opposition, the one that was uh, inviting to vote in, in that moment. And Chavez won with a uh, 60% of the 70% of the participation of the population at that time. It was amazing. It was incredible. He was uh, pretty sure that he was going to win. And what we saw last, last Sunday here in Mexico was uh, totally different. We saw a president uh, calling for their uh, support. Supporters to participate in this referendum. This is the first time here in Mexico that we participate in something like this, and this is the first time also during this administration that we participate in a a, in a consulta popular, in a a popular referendum too. uh, Last year in August. Uh, calling for a trial for the uh, former president. So we are uh, transitioning to uh, a participatory democracy here in in our country, I'm I'm sure about that. And uh, last Sunday, we needed the 40% of the total of the population that can vote uh, to participate in this referendum. Uh, Only participated 20%, the opposition in this country didn't want to participate. Uh, they said that it was only to legitimate AMLO's administration. And of course, they were right. Uh, AMLO was pretty sure uh, that he was going to win. He is one of the most, uh, of the presidents more with more, uh, with most of the support, like in, in general in in planet <laughs> the globe, he is I think the second one uh, with this is uh, support. He's around in the even in conservative polls, he has around sixty percent of the support of the population. But we're pretty sure that it's around seventy percent, and it's a lot considering that we are we're still like at the end, but we are still in the pandemic under a pandemic, and he has a lot of uh, support. So uh, around. 20, um, it was 27 million uh, uh, people participated last Sunday, and more than 90% said yes to the, uh, to the president to continue the, his mandate. And it was amazing, simply amazing, because we had an electoral institute against the population, against the Obradorismo, against the president, and all. Uh, against this so-called Ford transformation, La Cuarta Transformacion here in our country. So even when we had everything against this referendum, people participated. It was was not a surprise. Uh, AMLO has a lot of support. Uh, Specifically, uh, he has more support after the elections in 2018. Uh, Remember, we were under neoliberal, Almost a dictatorship under pre and after with the pan in this country. So people were really, really tired of this kind of government. So they, they decided, even when they weren't uh, supporting AMLO, they were really, really tired of this government, uh, tired of repression, of persecution. So that's why AMLO won uh, with more than 60% of the votes in 2018. So now it's more important, uh, though, so uh, this uh, what we saw uh, this last Sunday, because we are in the middle of an approval of an electrical reform. Um, Mm And I think it's the most important uh, action that AMLO has done during his mandate. it is not—it's not looking for the nationalization of lithium, but it is looking for the control of exploration and exploitation mm-hmm. of, of this mineral. One of the most important nowadays. In, in, in the whole planet, the so-called white gold. Uh, yeah. It is used uh, for technology, for c- uh, cell phones, for laptops, uh, mm-hmm. for technology in general. And we remember that was, that was the, one of the main issues uh, why Evo Morales was defeated in a coup okay. in 2019, yeah. the, the lithium. So we are in the middle of a, a big battle here in Mexico. Uh, It was planned uh, to be approved this uh, reform uh, yesterday, but now it's gonna be approved this Sunday is the discussion. So we're expecting for thousands of people to to participate in this demonstration, trying to put some pressure on our legislators
2: this Sunday. You know, this is, um, well, there's two things. First, can you explain to uh, the audience what cuatro transformaciones, Forty-four T, four trans, transformation.
0: Yeah, I think this is uh, something that uh, it's part of these national governments, nationalist governments uh, in the region for the last decades. We've seen how in Bolivia, they called their change process, el proceso de cambio to this government of Femo Morales, and now with Lucho Arce in uh, Venezuela uh, under the neoliberal uh, governments, they called uh, the Cuarta Republica, the Four Republic, and then Chavez changed it not only to to the Bolivarian Revolution, but also uh, to the Fifth uh, uh, Republic. And now Mm -hmm. what we're seeing here in Mexico is this narrative that we are under a big, 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 big uh, transformation. The first one uh, that AMLO is considering to say that this is the fourth transformation. Uh, It's the independence, the process of independence. The second one is the revolution in uh, 1910 here in Mexico. And then the reform. there were a lot of reforms here in Mexico to separate, for example, the charge from the state uh, to, to keep uh, forward against the conservatives here in our country. And this, I'm really saying all the time that this is the fourth transformation. So we're expecting, and I I, I, I insist that what, that's why it's so important what we've seen not only uh, last Sunday, but also what we're gonna see next Sunday with this discussion. Uh, I think this is one of the most, not only uh, symbolic, but really like uh, the most uh, important initiatives that amlo has going forward against the transnational interest against mm-hmm. the i wouldn't say the oligarchy in this in this in this case of this reform but uh, it's uh, it's about um, the the severity of this country so it's not a little conversation about energy it's a whole battle what we're gonna see next Sunday and I'm sure that it is this is a battle that it's not only about what's gonna happen about with the votes in the Congress this is a battle that we are gonna fight in the streets that we're gonna that we are as, as we are already fighting in the media in the independent media we are fighting every single day against the New York Times Against the Washington Post, against uh, Forbes and Los Angeles Times, and all of this media mm-hmm. that all the time are saying that uh, that AMLO is a, a risk. To, to Mexico. You know, this narrative in the whole Latin America that we are going to be Venezuela, uh, that for the Sao Paulo Forum, it's going to be like our, uh, I don't know, I don't know how to say it, but you know, it's the it's the same narrative in the, in the whole processes against Xiomara Castro in Honduras, against Lucho Arce in Bolivia. And the media has been fighting with this narrative that this reform, that the a referendum, that the, every single thing that AMLOS does. Um, it's against the democracy, it's against the human rights, it's against, you know, this same narrative. So this is gonna be a big battle next Sunday, and we're expecting for, for a like big, a huge demonstration in the streets.
2: Well, you know, this is all the narrative from the US. What you're describing is, you know, the template, the cookie-cutter narrative from the United States when a nation uh Dares to proclaim national sovereignty, its own independent foreign policy, its own economic policy, its own military policy, if it has a military. But also, you know, you bring up the lithium. So, this for Mexico is also a, is about natural resource sovereignty, petroleum, lithium. And we saw this, and I think you would agree, throughout the elections. Uh, Bolivia fall of 2020, you were there, Um, all the way through uh, December of 2021, there was a theme throughout Latin America and the Caribbean where where populations voted for governments that were focused on preserving national sovereignty, preserving their natural resource sovereignty, which is basically an anti-colonialist statement, and also for governments uh, people voted for governments that were had an economic program focused on uplifting a wide swath of the population. And those economic programs were anywhere from one step to the left to revolutionary leftists, but nevertheless, they were economic programs focused on uplifting a broad segment uh, of society. So this to me, what you're describing to us is, is just a continuation of this theme of this process happening throughout Latin America and the Caribbean and I would yeah, argue actually, being led by Mexico in many ways
0: yeah actually uh, this is something I'm really really fun because uh, all the time I'm saying like I'm, I'm I'm real sure that the audience that is following me all the time is a little bit that I, I keep uh, talking about Latin America all the time, but this is the same—the uh, same what we've seen in Latin America for the last decades, and I won't say only for the twi- uh, the last 20 years, uh, but for the last uh, I don't know maybe five, six decades. Uh, what we saw in the coup against Salvador Allende in 1976 was uh, precisely because they wanted the 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 natural resources of Chile, right. and they uh, they assassinated Salvador Allende, you know. Yeah. So what we saw also in Honduras, in the coup against Manuel Zelaya in 2009, uh, what we saw is because they wanted the the, the oil, they wanted the the natural resources of Honduras and also in Colombia or in any single country in Latin America, it has been the control this Monroe Doctrine (laughs) of the US in Latin America trying to control all the nations. And Mexico is not a deception, you know? Uh, I might say that a lot of my leftist and revolutionary friends all the time are saying that uh, maybe AMLO's administration is not a socialist one or not an anti-capitalist, but also it's not that easy being the neighbor of the U.S. No. It's, <laughs> it's, you cannot yeah. wake up and say like, okay, we are going to extirpate or we're going to take control of the, the transnationals, you know, um, AMLO might be assassinated next day. So... Even when it's not that easy, Amlo has been radicalized not only in his speeches but also in his actions. We remember, yes. and we're we've been talking about this Terry you and I all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Every time that we see <laughs> each other, we're talking about this amazing speech that Amlo gave last year uh, during the, uh, century, the anniversary of the uh, of Simón Bolívar.
2: Um, how do you say? Yeah. His, yeah. his, well, we said the, the 238th anniversary of Simone Bolivar's birth. And that yeah, was, exactly. he gave that talk on uh, Discurso on 24 July. And I think you and I both agree and many of our friends that it was probably the most important speech in the Americas last year.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, we... We listened to an AMLO defending Cuba talking about another organization uh, that might substitute the OAS uh, when mm-hmm. we've seen the role of the OAS during the last years, not only in the two last years, but also in, like in the last 20 years or more in this country. and. This wouldn't have happened two years ago with AMLO. Uh, AMLO has radicalized his vision of Latin America. All the time he was saying that his best foreign policy was the intern policy. And now we're going to see next uh, next month he's going to travel to Cuba, to Central America, to Argentina. You know, he knows already the role of the FMA, the IMF, uh, mm-hmm. the role of the OAS, the role of the US imperialism in the region. And I think he's doing uh, a great, a great job. I, I might say I have a lot of critics uh, on his uh, migration policy. Of course, <laughs> it's something that that you know has been like this. Uh, uh, I don't know how to say, but uh, when the U.S. Uh, is asking Amlo to do something, he's uh, the government is always asking to do something about migration policy, and Amlo has been clear that it's not. The most progressive uh, uh, policy, what the 4 T, the Four Transformation, has uh, about when it comes about migration. So even with with these uh, these things about migration, he has been near to something, to someone like Jean Luc Mélenchon in, in mm-hmm. France. In, Fra- in France, yeah, I confuse my I French, my
2: French, my English. <laughs> no, so, this is a Spanglish episode. It's okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so it's it part of eaten. that three thousand mile shared border <laughs> with the United States. <laughs> <Absolutely>. the cross cultural. <laughs> It's wonderful.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and we've seen also an AMLO near to Diaz-Canel from Cuba, you know, and this- And and, uh, making
2: sure Maduro was invited to the CELAC summit last September as the democratically elected president of Venezuela, if not the US appointed president.
0: yeah exactly even when the u.s is asking to their colonies to detain maduro in europe or even the u.s uh, amlo invited him to this Alac meeting here in mexico city yeah. so i think it's something really important what what is going on uh remember three years ago mexico was in the front in the first line attacking venezuela all the time in this group of line. and after uh, after amlo took power in, in 2018 uh uh, we see, we saw Mexico in the OAS and everywhere, uh, like just respecting uh, the uh, democratically elected government of Venezuela yeah. and things like that. So uh, returning to the lithium, uh, I think that this is maybe the most important battle of AMLO's administration mm. in this last for years, even when we, uh, even when he's not talking about nationalization of the lithium and only about the control of exploration and exploitation of these uh, resources, it's pretty important. It's also a talking about the control of electrical energy um it's not talking about the like the whole control uh, the mexican state it's not going to control the whole electrical energy in this country it's going to take control of 52% 52% of the industry, and it's enough to make these transnational, these oligarchies really, really pissed, really angry, and they're attacking. Yesterday, it was just amazing. In the Congress, we see, we saw this lobbyist uh, acting during the session. Actually, the president of the Congress has to stop the the session because he said like okay we cannot continue if we have people that it's not they're not member of the Congress uh, just yeah. hanging around here in the Congress yeah. and it was an Italian lobbyist you know representing a, a transnational uh, sitting next to the PRD of this party that used to be from the left here in Mexico just sitting next to this congresswoman uh, you know like talking about the the, the electrical reform so. I think it's huge. I think it's pretty important what we're going to see. We're expecting an aggressive uh, attack of the corporate media during the next day. We've seen. Oh, that's already happening in the north. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It is happening. And we've seen this specifically, this media outlet created with uh, Mexican. Quotes and quotes journalists that are mm-hmm. based on a uh, Delaware. It's not a coincidence. They created a, a, a company, a media outlet uh, called Latinos, uh, that they're attacking every single day from the U.S. with mm-hmm. uh, you know with 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 uh, fa- um, yeah with uh, fa- fini financiacion. Uh, I don't know how to say it, the funding, funding of, uh, funding. Yeah, the, mm-hmm. of uh, not only Mexican poli- politicians, but also from enterprises, you know, they have been attacking the Mexican administrations for the last Year year and a half. It was yeah. created if I if I remember in 2019, uh, as I said in Delaware in right after he was
2: elected inaugurated.
0: Yeah. yeah, and they have been attacking yeah. all the time. For example, they try to create this expectation about the the house of amlos son in Texas. If I don't if I remember, uh, it's okay. Uh, yeah. Saying that it was an energy. Uh, Company that was, you know, like with this, uh, that it was a problem, a whole problem that it was this uh, enterprise was funding sons, uh, amlo son. At the end, they can't, they couldn't prove anything, but they've been in these campaigns. During the last three years, specifically yeah. this media outlet, only for the last two, <laughs> but you know we have been every single day. Actually, one of these uh, press, uh, of these people of these journalists, quotes quotes of Latinos. Uh, yesterday, uh, there was uh, uh, an article of the, if I remember, in the New York Times was okay. Mm-hmm. Just,
2: yeah. to, well, there was an article. There was an opinion piece uh, a couple days after the referendum on the on the tenth. Uh, in the Washington Post. I mean, it's, it's very, very clear since, oh, consistent. I mean, since his inauguration, there's been, you know, once he laid out in his inaugural address what his vision was, particularly wanting to be able to make sovereign decisions about natural resources and energy production. That's when we saw, and I think this is really important for the audience to understand, is that's when the anti-OMLO narrative from the U.S. began. And it's not unique to Mexico. It's unique yeah. to any country, but specifically those in the hemisphere of the Americas that have any notion of so- sovereign national sovereignty, which also includes having you know, the right to recapture their sovereignty over what they do, with their natural resources and and that's going that is playing out very much so here i think it's really fascinating regarding last week's or sunday's referendum sunday the 10th april 10th that the vote was on sunday which is how elections are run in in mexico and that allows for everyone to participate or makes it much easier for uh, registered voters to participate. But what was fascinating to me was, this particular Sunday, Sunday the 10th, was Palm Sunday. And in a a majority Catholic country, that's a pretty significant day for the INE, or INE as we say here in Mexico, to select for the date of the referendum. It wasn't a date chosen by the president, it wasn't a date chosen by his party, Morena, it was a date chosen by the INE. And that was, you know, there's no way they didn't know what that's what Sunday April 10 was (laughs) (laughs) that's what I'm saying
0: (laughs) yeah no definitely it was not not a coincidence and returning to the journalist I was talking about this journalists from Latinos and the one who wrote in the Washington Post uh, yesterday, last uh, Monday, I don't remember when. Um, it, was, uh, it was also not a coincidence that the father of Leopoldo Lopez, you remember this, leader of the Venezuelan opposition of the radical right wing, um, father of Leopoldo Lopez is a member of the European Parliament. And he, as a, a, a parliament, he was saying that the president AMLO was attacking these journalists Loret de Mola. So everything is united, you know, the international right wing are collaborating, collab- collaborating in every single way, not only in the European Parliament, in the media, in the corporate media here in Mexico, in the US. Uh, the right wing in Latin America is also pretty connected to Japan, uh, the PAN, the right wing party here in Mexico. So we are going to fight a big battle this Sunday. So we call to the audience to be really, uh, really aware that can help to spread this kind of messages to see to keep uh, looking because I'm really I'm really surprised. Well, not surprised. I, I don't know what's what's the word, the excellent word. But I would like to 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 create in the U.S. Uh, audience uh, this uh, expectation of what's gonna happen because because we're we're gonna need you, you know, as yeah. the as the Venezuelans, as the Bolivians needed all the the U.S. citizens during the last years, specifically when the U.S is try to create destabilization. This is, I I I cannot always, I can't pronounce that word. Uh, Destabilization?
2: Destabilization. Oh my God. Destabilization.
0: That's (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. I I think that we're going to need the U.S. Uh, yeah. to be aware of what's, uh, what's going to happen next Sunday. And I mean, in the rest of this administration, we're going to have only three years. And uh, we're just in the middle, uh, 2024, are the election. So we are just around the corner. And I think this is going to be, a, I won't say that we are under a, uh, um, like a coup strategy or something but I might say that something similar of what happened in Brazil with Lula with Dilma also well this, they're uh, discrediting
2: campaign.
0: yeah they're there's an
2: overt attempt to discredit what right. what this president what the Mexican president was doing and what the Mexican people elected him to do yeah it's exactly a, it's a, it's so a discrediting right? at the very I mean that's probably a so I was probably a too politically kind word to use, but.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and that's why I said like millions of people voted last Sunday, you know, in the middle of a term, after a pandemic, after everything, after a a media campaign in Mexico and in the US and in an international media campaign, uh, we have a president democratically elected with more than 60% of approval in this country and they're trying to create this image of an approval of you know like people we don't like the president or whatever so we've seen this before specifically during the last three years in Latin America so I will say that we need every single person that is watching this to to keep looking of Mexican politics, to watch what's gonna happen, to see what's gonna happen next Sunday here, and I mean in the rest of the administration, we're gonna expecting to fight more battles, not only with the electrical reform, not only about lithium. So yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be interesting what's gonna happen. Well,
2: it's our job to keep the people in the states informed about all of this, and I hope that we can have you come back. Uh, in another week or two and talk about the results of this coming Sunday's um, electoral reform vote, because that is going to be so significant and is going to set the tone for the the next three years and beyond for Mexico.
1: Thank you, Terry and Alina. You can follow Alina on Twitter at Alina Duarte underscore. You are listening to Code Pink Radio coming to you through Pacifica Radio's WPFW in Washington, D.C., WBAI in New York City, and KPFT in Houston. We'll be back after this break with excerpts from our international rally against NATO and the war in Ukraine.
3: en la guerra de intervención la danza de la paloma hacia el furor medio de los desastres de la nación Maximiliano con todos sus traidores
1: That was La Paloma Juarista or The Juarista Dove by Eugenia Leon, a song that's become very popular in Mexico over the last few years. Uh, the last verses say, Oh little dove from yesterday and today, against racism and intervention, fly to the borders, take a star off their flags. We don't want imperialism. We're tired of their cynicism. Our air is sovereign. We're common people and Mexicans. Welcome back. I'm Leonardo Flores, Latin America Campaign Coordinator at Code Pink. You are listening to Code Pink Radio presented by WBAI in New York City, WPFW in Washington, D.C., and KPFT in Houston. Up next, we have ex- excerpts from our global online rally earlier this month to stay. To say stop the war in Ukraine and no to NATO. This event was hosted by Code Pink's Medea Benjamin and Stop the War Coalition's Chris Neinham. You will hear B.J. Prashad, historian, journalist, and director of the Tricontinental Institute; Claire Daly, a member of the European Parliament from Ireland, as well as Kate Hudson, general secretary of the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. It was a fantastic event, which is available on Code Pink's YouTube channel.
4: Thanks a lot, Chris. Um, thanks a lot, Medea. Um, Today, April 9th, in 2003, the United States Army entered Baghdad. The looting began. Baghdad had not seen anything like that since the 13th century pillage by the Mongols led by Helgu Khan. In 2003, just a few weeks after that, while the United States was in the midst of its illegal war against Iraq, Fidel Castro spoke in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Our country does not drop bombs on other peoples, Castro said, nor does it send thousands of planes to bomb cities. Our country's tens of thousands of scientists and doctors have been educated in the idea of saving lives. Cuba had an army, yes, but not an army for war. It had, Castro said, an army of white coats. We have at least two ways to be alive in this world. We can live in a world of weapons and intimidation, a world for preparation toward war, and a world for war. Or we can live in a world of teachers and doctors, people who give us confidence that we can make a better world out of this one, this wretched world of war and profit, ugliness that overwhelms us. Wars either end with destruction of a country's political institutions and its social capacity, or they end with ceasefires and negotiations. NATO's war on Libya ended with destruction, the country stumbling along with the smell of cordite in the air and with a broken social order. The fate of Libya is not to be repeated anywhere, not in Ukraine certainly. And yet that is the fate ordained for the peoples of Afghanistan, Somalia, and Yemen, countries suffocated by wars, egged on by the West, armed by the West, wars by which the West has profited. Contemporary Russia, a country with nuclear weapons, emerged out of the fall of the USSR a coup led by boris yeltsin against the russian parliament with tanks blazing an experience that has been fully digested by those in power in russia they will not allow themselves to suffer the fate of libya or of yemen or of afghanistan confidence must be built for a ceasefire and for negotiations a ceasefire not only inside ukraine which is imperative, but a ceasefire in the broader U.S. imposed pressure campaign on all of Eurasia. What is this pressure campaign and why bother talking about it now? Shouldn't we only say Russia out of Ukraine? Yes, we say that. But that is not going to sort out the deeper problems that provoked this war in the first place. Let's be frank. When the USSR collapsed, it was the Western countries that used their resources and their power through Yeltsin and then Putin, first to impoverish the Russian people by destroying the social net and allowing a few Russians to devour its social wealth, then by drawing these Russian billionaires to invest in Western-driven globalization, including the English football teams. The West backed Yeltsin's bloody war in Chechnya and then Putin's war in Chechnya again, with Tony Blair happily making sure to rearm Russia when it was necessary. We stood against the destruction of Grozny. We did, not Tony Blair. Tony Blair signed standard individual export licenses till his arm hurt blair welcomed putin to london saying i want russia and the west to work together to promote stability and peace in 2001 george w bush looked into putin's eyes and saw his soul saying he was straightforward and trustworthy it was the new york times thomas friedman who said to keep rooting for putin in 2001 Do we need now to take lessons from the likes of Blair and Bush, Clinton, and people of that crowd? This movie keeps replaying itself. Saddam of Iraq, a great hero of the United States, and then its villain. The same with Noriega of Panama. Now the stakes are unforgivably higher. The danger is greater. Grandstanding does not help. What lies beneath the surface? In 2001, the United States abandoned the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. And in 2018, it unilaterally left the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, gutting the policy of deterrence. Putin began to talk about the need for security guarantees, not from Ukraine, or even from NATO, NATO, which is a puffed up Trojan horse of Washington's ambitions. Putin asked for security guarantees from the United States. Why? Because in 2018, the United States government announced publicly that the war on terror was over and that the United States would now focus its attention, and this is the United States government reports, it would now focus its attention on preventing the re-emergence of long-term strategic competition from near-peer rivals such as China and Russia. European countries with the United States began to carry out freedom of navigation exercises through NATO in the Baltic Sea, the Arctic Sea, and the South China Sea, sending threatening messages to China and Russia. Those security guarantees, Putin asked, referred to an end to this US-imposed pressure campaign around Eurasia end this war, but this war will not end merely in Ukraine. The entire war must be ended. No more seeking to defeat near peer rivals. This is the worst kind of macho idealism. The idea that the United States can be dominant forever. We want a realistic world, a world of humanity that wants to deal with the climate catastrophe. A world that wants to end hunger and illiteracy. A world that wants to lift us out of despair and into hope. A world that would like to have an army of white coats, an army of doctors, and not an army with guns. Join us. Join us in building an international movement of hope against fear, of love against hate. Thanks a lot. Um, we're now
5: going to go to our next participant. Her name is Claire Daly. She's um, an Irish politician. She's a member of the European Parliament. But she's one of the very, very few political representatives uh, in Europe who has actually spoken out against the war. And I guess quite a few of you have seen her speech. It was a very, very inspiring speech. It circulated massively on social media. And I think it's really helped to kind of validate and spread the anti-war message so we're very pleased to have a special exclusive four or five minute analysis from claire daly there's no doubt about it the war in ukraine is a travesty it's a travesty for the people of ukraine who are dying in their thousands and displaced in their millions it's a travesty for the people of russia being crippled under sanctions and it's a travesty for the international working class who will now be expected to shoulder the costs All the worst people have been empowered by this war. The arms merchants, the war hawks, the intelligence agencies, NATO, the far right, the Gulf autocracies, and the fossil fuel industry. Ukraine is a spark in a powder keg. The risks of escalation are profound. All of the world's power blocks are now poised and primed, almost as they were in 1914. And at no point in the last half century have we ever been closer to a generalised conflict. And now again, we even have to live under the threat of a nuclear holocaust. You know, in all of this, it might seem like the anti-war movement being in its worst position ever. War is on everyone's lips. Many ordinary people are actually even demanding war. At home, we're sort of targets pro-war establishment no longer dismiss us as irrelevant idealists now we're peddling disinformation we're the enemy within there are calls to censor us to banish us from the airwaves but we should realize this is not a sign of how powerless we are they don't want to silence us because nobody's listening they want to silence us because they are afraid that people will listen this is a moment when the anti-war voice actually has to make a difference. And it's really important that we don't run away from that responsibility. We're actually seeing the re-emergence of inter imperialist conflict. And it's the duty of the anti-war movement, just as, as it did in the years before World War I, to be truly independent, to, impose, to oppose armaments, to oppose militarisation to oppose the logic of imperialism, to oppose the rush to war and to be loud and clear. Of course, we condemn Russia's war unequivocally, but we're not going to be derailed in that opposition by pretending that NATO and the US didn't have a role in that conflict behind the scenes. The generations of people alive today and the generations of people to come cannot afford war now or ever. We can't afford to finance the arms industry from the public purse, destroying the homelands and lives of our brothers and sisters. We can't afford to shoulder the cost of sanctions, the rocketing energy costs, the runaway inflation, the rising cost of living, the plummeting real wages, all galloping down the tracks at us as a result of this war. In the event that those cheering for NATO to attack Russia get their wish, we cannot afford to send another generation of young lives into the murder machine. And most of all, we actually don't have time for any of this. These are the opening years of a breakdown in the natural systems of our planet. First climate, then biology are beginning to unravel. An emergency is actually threatening our survival. And instead of tackling it, the imperialists on all sides are buying weapons, enlisting armies and preparing for war. They're even using this war to undo the measures that have already been taken and are don't go far enough to deal with the climate crisis. These people are building a massive bonfire. And if we don't stop them, they'll set the world on fire. But, you know, the anti-war movement is global. All working people have a common interest in opposing war. So we join with anti-war comrades in Russia who are risking prison sentences for speaking out, anti-war comrades in Ukraine who are opposing war, even as shells fall from the sky, and the anti-war movement in every country. In saying now more than ever, no to Russian war, no to NATO, no to inter-imperialist conflict.
6: And I think we're fired up for our next speaker, who is spending her life trying to get rid of nuclear weapons, and that is Kate uh, Hudson, a political activist, an academic and general secretary of the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, an organization that aims to achieve British nuclear disarmament. Thanks for joining us, Kate. Thanks very much indeed Madeira, and can I say CND also campaigns for global nuclear disarmament. Um, so uh, tragically the world is closer to nuclear war than it has been for decades. It's maybe closer than it has ever been. Yet it seems that no effort is being made to pull us back from that risk and on the contrary what we're seeing is governments on all sides piling on more threats, more militarization, and more actions that are making nuclear war not just possible, but now probable. It seems our governments in, are in denial about this, but we cannot be in denial too. We need to take action against this acceleration to nuclear catastrophe. Now, at the start of the war, we all heard, it was on the TV the newspapers, Putin publicly announced that he had put Russia's nuclear weapons on special alert. In fact, at that time, around 1,000 Russian nuclear weapons and the same number of NATO nuclear weapons were already on prompt launch high alert status, as it's called. And most high alert missiles can be launched in 15 minutes and the flight time of those missiles carrying the weapons between the US and Russia is around 30 minutes. So, if someone had pressed that button at the start of this meeting, Medea, they would now already be at their destination. You know, this is an, an immediate and urgent disaster scenario. Now, as NATO leaders met this week, they agreed massive extra arms for the Ukraine. Antony Blinken spoke of sending new systems to Ukraine. That have so far not been provided, he said, by NATO, but he declined to go into detail about them. So, what are these new unnamed weapons that are being sent to Ukraine? And I would say we can't rule out the possibility that nuclear weapons are part of this package, because there's a lot of talk at the moment about tactical nuclear weapons or battlefield nukes. They're spoken about as if they're somehow not very dangerous. I mean, and this is just criminal misinformation. And I think what they're doing is, is softening us up for the use of nuclear weapons. I mean, this is disastrous. Not only would they do massive unrestricted damage, because one thing you can be sure about with nuclear weapons, you can't confine them to a battlefield, you can't confine their impact to a country. Um, So the use of such weapons uh, would also be highly likely to lead to escalation to larger nuclear weapons use. What's worse, when NATO leaders met last month, they pledged, quotes, to significantly strengthen longer-term deterrence and defence. Now, deterrence, as anyone in the peace movement knows, or even wider, this is usually just a euphemism for nuclear weapons. So this is a terrifying scenario, strengthening deterrence, strengthening nuclear weapons. So where will that take us in nuclear terms, because there are already enough nuclear weapons in the world to destroy everything many times over. NATO and Russia, between them, have 12,000 nuclear weapons. This is an almost inconceivable scale, because today's bombs are vastly bigger than the Hiroshima bomb, and that bomb killed at least 200,000 people. In today's terminology, the Hiroshima bomb would be described as a very small bomb, perhaps even a mini nuke. And many of the world's larger warheads are a hundred times the size of the Hiroshima bomb. I mean, it's just unbelievable. The US also has around 150 free fall nuclear bombs. That means they can be dropped from planes and they're located across Europe assigned to NATO. And I should say that many of the so-called host countries have been trying to get rid of these weapons out of their countries, but they haven't been allowed to by NATO. Now, in the event of a nuclear exchange over Ukraine, I think these weapons would be very likely to be used. So a russia nato nuclear war could actually be fought in Europe. And for those of us who've been around for a while, you'll remember that this was our worst fear in the 1980s when millions mobilized across Europe against cruise and Pershing missiles. So maybe NATO is intending to locate more nuclear weapons in Europe, perhaps. In the 1980s, we got rid of all those nuclear weapons and we have to have the energy, the commitment and the confidence to do that again. Today's threat is made much worse because of changing nuclear use policies. In the Cold War, think back, the theory was that nuclear weapons would never be used. They were a deterrent. But now policies specifically include nuclear weapons use, including in conventional wars, even against countries that don't have nuclear weapons. And the UK policy is the same. This is where they are going. And so the taboo on nuclear use is over, and we have to face up to that. And this requires a new prioritisation of anti-nuclear campaigning by the peace movement. Nuclear weapons cannot be ignored.
1: Thank you so much to Vijay, Claire, and Kate. For our listeners, there will be another International Day of Action to stop the war in Ukraine and say no to NATO on May 6th. Sign up to follow us at codepink.org to keep up to date about all of these events. Code Pink is also helping to coordinate the peace contingent of the Poor, People, Poor People's Campaign Assembly and Moral March on Washington on June 18th urging folks from all over the country to come join us in dc if you want more info including how to get there please visit codepink.org together thank you for listening to code pink radio presented by wbai in new york city wpfw in washington dc and kpft in houston